Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Starting Line Podcast with me, Rich Lee. And today I'm going to have to do something I've not done before, which is give a content warning. In this episode, we speak to Mike McCarthy, who founded the co-founded the Baton of Hope, a suicide prevention campaign. So the content warning is we talk a lot about suicide and grief and Mike's son, Ross, who took his own life in 2021. So if that is not for you, that's completely understandable. It's not going to be a topic for everybody, but it is a powerful conversation. I think it's an important one to be having, especially when you consider that suicide is the biggest cause of death for people under the age of 35, and particularly men. So we get into that. I think it's important that we, two men, um, I've just turned 36. In fact, I'm recording this intro and outro on my 36th birthday on the 6th of October. So there you go. You've got the date. You can remember that for next year. Uh, I like money and whiskey and motorbikes and nice things. (laughs) I joke, but this conversation is an important one. It is a tough one, but it's not without hope and without love and of course, sincerity, but also lightness. I, I, I don't think it's too far a stretch to say this is probably the most important conversation that we've had yet on the starting line because suicide can affect and does affect many of us I've been personally affected impacted quite uh, you know quite profoundly by it and I know many people are and have been and it's something that we will only get to Mike's hope is zero suicides now of course people listen to that and think well that's not going to be the case that's never going to happen but let's start from there Let's get to, we, we don't want to be losing anybody to suicide and do what we can. And I think it only happens with conversations like this, with us all coming together to, to support people that do need our help. And I think as to some of the points Mike makes in this conversation, there are systemic issues 
that prevent people from getting the help they need. Mike's son, Ross, went and spoke to health professionals and was told that he was put on a six-month waiting list and it was two weeks later that he'd taken his own life. So Mike makes a very, very good point in this. And again, I don't want to be pulling everything out of the interview, but he says if that was cancer and he'd gone in and there was a lump, they'd investigate that lump quickly. They would do what they can and we would you'd get to the, the root of that problem as quickly as possible medically. It's, it's not an easy fix, but that's the hope here is that support is there more quickly and more readily for people that need it. If you need help or just somebody to speak to, you can speak to the Samaritans on 116123. In fact, one of my best friends has just started working uh, or lending his time to the Samaritans and I'm incredibly proud of him. He's doing a fantastic job uh, supporting people in moments of need and loneliness. And yeah, it's, uh, it's, there, there is support out there. So hopefully if you listen to this and you think, actually, I do need somebody to speak to, please know that there are people that care about you and people that want to speak to you and will listen. I think that's the important thing. Mike co-founded the Baton of Hope with Steve Phillip, another fatherhood. Well, they came together, having made contacts following the death of their sons, Ross and Jordan, to suicide. And the Baton of Hope was a tour with a, a beautiful baton. If you go to our social media, that's all starting line show, at starting line show, Instagram, TikTok, you'll see this baton, and it's a thing of beauty. Um, it was a tour started in Glasgow on the 25th of June and finished in London. Uh, where they arrived at Downing Street, where Mike was presented with um, the Daily Points of Light Award, which is given up by Downing Street to recognise outstanding individual volunteers and people who are making a real change in their community. Uh, He was met by the Health Minister, uh, Maria Caulfield, and Rishi Sunak, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, actually gave a a speech about, about the Battle of Hope and... I mean, he said, it is tragic that suicide is the biggest cause of death for under 35s. And he said, coming together in grief with Steve, you have created an extraordinary movement. From Glasgow to Downing Street, you have taken to streets all across the country, getting people talking about suicide and reducing stigma. And the baton was carried by people impacted by and affected by suicide. Many who'd lost family members, friends. Uh... The baton of hope is a true point of light in our country, and it will help to save many lives now and in years to come. And he dubbed it the, the the biggest suicide prevention campaign. And I think recognition like that is incredibly important, but just as important, and we get into this in the conversation, is what's done about that. So without further ado, I bring to you my conversation with Baton of Hope co-founder, Mike McCarthy. How long ago did you stop working as a journalist? Uh, 2020. Uh, I left Sky News. Uh, I've been with them since 2000. Was that working up here in Sheffield? Uh, all over the place. Um, living here, but supposedly based in Manchester. I was right. North of England Bureau Chief. That included Afghanistan, Iraq, um, you name it. As in you were over there? Yeah, yeah. How was that? Great in the sense that you know, it's something that I know nobody can take that experience away from mm. me. And uh, I, I had some sort of quite beautiful moments. It, it probably sounds a bit weird, but in Afghanistan in particular, uh, I remember one day near Kabul, 
uh, we were doing an interview and doing some filming, and there were shells going over our heads, so we were well within reach of these shells. But uh, I just kind of got a feeling that today's a good day, you're going to be okay. You know, it's probably sort of the, the last thoughts of many an idiot, but... <laughs> But, but it was, you know, it was okay. And then other times you just sense that things aren't quite right. But uh, by and large, there were very rewarding experiences because it creates a real sort of bond. Uh, and I like working in small teams. Did you always want to go and do war correspondence or was it? No, I'm not a war correspondent. I am not a war correspondent. <laughs> it's um, It was like there was a war and Sky News needed people to cover it. And foolishly, I volunteered to go to Afghanistan. And then later, I was kind of asked to go to Iraq and felt that I couldn't say no, really. I could have said no. I could have said no, um, but didn't. I said yes. And uh, yeah, no, there were uh, amazing experiences. Spent some time in Basra, Israel. And sort of, yeah, sort of travelled around a bit. And to me, that's the great thing. I've always wanted to be a journalist since being a kid. Uh, And I can remember the moment that, or a couple of moments when I was, that's it, that's what you're going to do. What were those moments? There was a programme called Adventure Weekly, uh, an old black and white programme that was about a group of kids who got together. And I think, if I've got this right, I think the dad of one of them was a newspaper editor. And, you know, completely unrealistically, he gave them access to the printing press. So they went around their village or whatever, got stories. And that, and that I just thought, that is so cool. And then I remember as well, the moon landing. And I think my memory's is a, a little bit blurred on it. And I'm useless with dates, by the way. But I'm sure my mum and dad woke me up in the night to watch it on television. Everybody at that time, because there'd been a huge build-up to it, every boy wanted to be an astronaut. But I I can remember thinking, I want to be that guy who's standing there with that microphone telling the world that is the coolest job in the world. I don't want to go to the moon. I want to be him. You know, and they were both as a result of television. You know, that the influence, I suppose. So so it never interested you being a written journalist. You never wanted to, um, you know, write for a paper journalist. You wanted to be there with a mic, getting the story out there. Yeah, I wanted to be in the thick of it. Uh, and I wanted to observe, and I wanted to tell the story. I suppose is that being proximity to interesting things happening? Is that yeah, what, what do you think made you want to go and, and and do exactly that? <laughs> Ultimately, it probably sounds a bit trite, but people, you know, I, I like being That's with why people. I do. Exactly, and I wanted to know their stories. I always want to know, you know, if you're sitting on a plane or whatever. I always sort of wonder, wonder where they're going and what. What's made them want to go there and who are they? Now, I've only ever seen it written down. I've never heard anybody say the word, but I think it's sonder or sunder to like, the, the, the notion that, hang on, everybody else, every other of the seven billion people has their own thoughts. They're just like me, you know, they've got their own internal monologue, their own internal thought, you know, and that, that idea of, Jesus, everybody here was born. Everybody here, you know, lives their own complicated, weird, messy lives. And as exactly as you just said then, you know, you walk through, town and you think there's so many stories here and I guess that's that's what I'm doing with this is speaking to interesting people with with a story to tell and like you with journalism possibly like I don't know what you're going to do with this once you hear it or once you see it once you watch it but I hope that I can at least tell that story yeah I think everybody has got a story to tell and the other thing that often sort of crosses my mind is that 
whatever chance has created, what you know, in whatever way the stars have aligned, the one thing that we all share at this moment is that we're here together. We'll be gone one day, but at the moment, we're all sharing the same period of history. And again, that kind of fascinates me. And I, I, I just want to know, how did you respond to this? How did you respond to that? What did you do during lockdown? And uh, all, all that kind of stuff. And it is, I, I like people, I like being around people. I don't particularly value being alone. Um, so yeah, I suppose it's partly that. Did you go straight from school into a job or was that via uni? What was the route into journalism? Yeah, I'm a university dropout. I went to university and was kind of hankering after being a journalist and I just lost patience and I just wanted to do it. I, I'd got it into my head. I knew what I wanted to do. I, I, you know, I didn't think that... It's very rare at that age. Yeah, it, it is. And I was very lucky with our kids, you know, um, th- there was a lot of sort of uh, self-analysis and, you know, a lot of questions swirling around as to which direction they should take. None of them were ever interested in journalism, by the way. <laughs> uh, must have completely put them off. Yeah, and I came back from, like, Afghanistan thinking, they're going to love this to one, tell. you know, <laughs> they're going to love this one. Uh, you know, a bullet went really close one day and I'll tell them. <laughs> Uh, but no, I remember actually it was Christmas and they were just far too absorbed with with Christmas. And it sort of struck me at the time as well that this world there, you know, where people were going through such hardship and coming straight back to this sort of Western Christmas, uh, it was quite quite striking. But um, but yeah, no, I was very lucky in that. Respect. What years were you in Afghanistan? Oh, 2001 it must have been. I think. Yeah, because I joined Sky in 2000, uh, and I, I told you I was rubbish with dates. <laughs> I can remember some of the incidents as, as, as clearly as yesterday, but the dates I'm rubbish with. Uh, yeah, it was 2001. Yeah, and we flew to uh, Kabul, into the Hindu Kush mountains from Tajikistan. Yeah, and again, I remember sort of landing. Was it scary? Uh, at times, yeah. <laughs> From the moment we landed, I just because they throw your bags into the helicopter, and I just got this sort of like one big bag. I was sort of walking around with my bag, and there were soldiers there. There were Allied soldiers uh, who who were there to sort of greet our helicopter, and immediately guys with Kalashnikovs started coming towards me and pointing at me, and then pointing upwards. Uh, I just couldn't work out what on earth was happening. And I realised that my bag had split and I was distributing fruit and nut bars everywhere. And it was in the middle of Eid. And I was sort of like, you know, my, my introduction to war coverage was like to scattering food on the ground, you know, and um, they were sort of pointing up as if at the moon saying, this is not really a good idea. Not fair, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, but no, there, there were uh, scary moments. I remember once we were in a hotel in Kabul, uh, high on a hill, uh, a place that it was the Intercontinental Hotel that would have been at one time quite a place, you know, quite a special place. But it was derelict and dirty. It was filthy. But we were on the roof doing live reports at night time with a spotlight, you know, so we were sitting targets and and in Kabul it kind of sits on a large plain and you've got the Hindu Kush mountains around and you've got little communities of people dotted in the mountains. So you're a sitting target and, and there was one occasion where 
I'm no expert, but I just knew that a bullet had come close. There was something about almost metallic sound as the sort of, you know, it, it went past my ear. Uh, we had to stop doing the reports. That, that was quite scary. And there were some scary moments. You've got a lot of, uh, or you had a lot of adolescents carrying Kalashnikovs, and that's not a good mix, you know. On the whole, you know, it's, um, I'm just glad I got the opportunity. What's one of your most memorable reports, or not necessarily even from Afghanistan, or favourite or most, most memorable reports? Oh, that, that's, that's a real hard one. I remember going to the, was it the 60th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz? And uh, there was a guy there who was a Brit who'd been in Auschwitz. He'd, he'd come to live in Britain after, after the war. Uh, Ziggy Shipper, his name. And um, he was one of the people that, you know, if, if you look at the, the old pictures from Auschwitz, dressed in basically pyjamas uh, out in the snow in the middle of winter. And he was there. And I forget what age he was, but he was a ripe old age. And so resilient. It was snowing. Uh, the atmosphere was just incredible. There were princes there and presidents from all over the world. Putin... Uh, was there and there were these sort of male choirs singing and the railway lines going into Auschwitz up to the Arbeit Machtrei sign were sort of lit up with with fire. It was it was very dramatic. And you've got some of these old people, survivors from Auschwitz, sitting outside with their sort of uniforms, if that's the right word, uh, wearing those but covered in a blanket, old people. Uh, who had been through so much and were so resilient, and that that stands out in my mind. But there are so many things. It's it's actually it's the people more than the story that 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 stand out. And on on that particular one, it was Ziggy Shipper. I thought you might say you opened this Asda. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've done stuff like that. Oh, I bet. I've done the longest sausage in the world. Yeah. <laughs> And that, I think, was, uh, that might have been after I came back from Afghanistan. You know, I was I, I came back thinking, hey, I'm an international war correspondent. And, um, yeah, I think within a few weeks it was, uh, can you go to Rotherham to cover the world's biggest sausage story? Was, so, was it big? It was quite it was, big. It was to be fair, big. it was, yeah, it was worth going to see, yeah. How big are we talking? I can't remember. <laughs> but, I mean, Stupid I mean, question. Meters? <laughs> well, like, I mean, I can't even imagine. Oh, it was huge. It was like a big, great big, you know, like a Cumberland sausage. Held up, you know, numerous times. Was it's, it like a was it a, was it a PR stunt? I mean, I guess. What other reason do you do that? I, 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 honestly, I don't remember an awful lot about it, other than it being in one of those horribly sort of clinical, sort of factory floor type places that look as though they're sort of semi mortuary and lots of meat flying around. And um, yeah, oh, that's right. Yeah, I. Um, there was a guy dressed as a sausage, and I remember. Of course, doing there was. A, yeah, no, there was a guy dressed as a sausage, and I did an interview with him. I remember. So you know, that's pretty much, I think, one of the low points. <laughs> well, we've gone Afghanistan, our <laughs> 60th anniversary of Auschwitz, to to the biggest sausage. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, you know that. I wasn't a war correspondent. There are war correspondents out there who are dedicated to it like it's a kind of religion, and they're so incredibly brave. Uh, and there were a, a two or three at Sky when I, when I was there, and I was basically just a, a fill-in and was never meant to be a war correspondent.
So you mentioned your children and their lack of interest in becoming journalists. You've got your wife, yep. um, Glynis. Yep, son Tom, daughter Laura, and uh, Ross, who, who died in 2021. In 2021, so that was just after just after lockdown. Was it yeah. still? Was there still lockdown? Uh, it, I think it was coming to an end. I think it was right at the very end. Again, this thing about dates and stuff—it's uh, all a bit of a blur. How did you all find lockdown? We got through it like everybody else. Ross found it difficult. Uh, he wrote a long farewell letter when he died, and uh, he did refer to the the difficulty of coping with. Uh, lockdown uh, and actually the last time we saw him was Christmas 2020 uh, when we went to his house and we had to stand outside and talk to him he was in a conservatory that he built actually was he was he a builder what was his what was his... Uh, no he was a, an industrial electrician so he was very handy one of those annoying people that was just good at you know can look at something and fix it oh it was incredible. I'm not that. <laughs> yeah I, I still the, you know funny things that remind you it's like whenever I go to the bathroom we've got a mirror that it's one of those that you you swipe your hand underneath and the light comes on yes and every time I go in the bathroom now and put the light on I remember Ross because that light would not work I swear I wipe my hand underneath it many many times it would not come in and I asked Ross to sort of have a look at it he came he wiped his hand underneath it and came on straight away and it's like some kind of miracle Uh, and it makes me smile because we joked about it at the time you know that uh, oh it needed an electrician to sort of swipe his hand yeah no it was handy so it's it's a hard one to lead into. It's a very hard one to lead into because you've been doing incredible things. You've been dedicated to talking about his legacy and Ross himself and what it means to go through something quite so difficult and trying to get it out to other families and trying to talk about suicide prevention and trying to talk about um, you know, this as a topic. What's made you want to talk about it? The main thing is that it just, I don't know, I suppose, just gets hold of your heart. And it's something that, obviously, you know, you, you couldn't ignore if, if you wanted to. There were many reasons why it sort of led me into the sort of path that I've taken since. And um, Ross was just a good man. He was uh, funny. He got a little boy, Charlie. Um, he was just such an incredible human being, kind and when he died, he, he left a, a letter uh, in which he addressed each member of the family, including Charlie, who was then three years old, encouraging him to be brave and to be whatever he wanted to be in life, you know, to take all the opportunities that um, I suppose in some ways Ross maybe felt that he'd been uh, denied. And in that letter, he said, please fight for mental health. The support is just not there. And when I finally sort of just started to get back on my feet, it just sort of struck me how massively poignant it was that somebody who was on the point of leaving this world could see that there was a cause to be championed in a world that they wouldn't be part of. And that, to me, kind of summed up the essence of what who Ross was. He just got this instinctive feeling for the underdogs in life. I once heard a saying, it's uh, the wise man plants a tree whose shade he knows he'll never sit under. And that's Ross planting a tree. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that, that sums it up perfectly. And the other thing that struck me was that 
you know, I discovered that suicide was the biggest killer of under 35s in this country, men and women. It's the biggest killer of under 50-year-old men, but the biggest killer of... So statistically, if you're under 35 in this country, the biggest threat to your own life is you. And in all my years of being a journalist, you know, 40 years, it had never crossed my radar. You know, it was bigger than COVID, bigger than drugs, road accidents, war, you name it, the biggest killer. I think it's... Four times the number of people die by suicide as die die on the roads. Yeah, it was a statistic I heard. Yeah, and it's because I we've all heard the in, in the last few years at least in the last five to ten years maybe the you know it's the biggest killer of men predominantly under the age of forty five. This as I was researching and, and listening to to you talk and reading what you've written, this is the first time I've seen the statistic. It is the biggest killer of people under the age of 35 and I think that's such a powerful statistic that we need to I'm glad you said it first if you wouldn't wouldn't have I would have been bringing it up it's it's powerful and I think that will shock people and it should shock people yeah absolutely it certainly shocked me to the core and it made me feel guilty that I hadn't reported on it that I hadn't drawn attention to it I just wasn't aware you know I'd covered war crime floods terrorist Biggest sausages, thank you for reminding me. Um, but I'd never come across this particular subject. And I felt guilty about that. And um, I just wanted to sort of shout out, where are the conversations? Where's the political debate? Where are the lessons in the classroom? Why aren't we talking about this? You know, we, we, we're we so aware these days, quite rightly, of, of the risks uh, of cancer, uh, the risks of drugs. You know, look at the, the material that's in schools related to, you know, anti-drugs campaign. Again, absolutely right. But nothing, you know, when it comes to suicide, silence. Because it used to be considered as a sin and a crime. And I think traditionally it's been swept under the carpet. And the statistics in the UK have stagnated for 15 years. My own view is that we all have to look at ourselves because it affects every one of us, or could do potentially, and just ask, why is that? Why have we not done anything in terms of reducing these figures over the last 15 years? Um, And... You know, those words, please fight for mental health, the true, uh, the, the support is just not there, kept coming back to me. And, uh, you know, I, I call them my driftwood days when I, like, I just didn't know which direction I was going in, whether I wanted to join uh, Ross. Um, but those words kept coming back to me. It's as though, you know, Ross was sort of whispering the words to me and it, he kind of, you know, set me on a different course. I thought I was going to be you know retiring going on holidays and and stuff that that's that's not how life turned out to be but he gave me a a new sense of direction before recording we spoke briefly about uh, your wife glynis and i mean how's that impacted your relationship with her and your relationship with your family in in general they that i mean you just mentioned there that you thought about joining ross yeah and that's powerful and i mean I'm i'm glad you're here how have those driftwood days impacted your relationships it affects families in very many different ways. I've lost count now of the mums, dads, brothers, sisters that I've spoken to. But one thing is absolutely clear. It's like a hand grenade going off in the living room. Someone else once described it as, and and I completely 
understand and, and, and get that. It's again, somebody described it as the sort of grief with the volume turned up to the to the maximum, and that's bound to have an impact. You don't go through something like that without it affecting the dynamics of uh, a family, the the relationships uh, within the family, and it's been really hard. It's uh, affected every one of us very deeply. In something I'd said about this podcast, I you know I'd used the word hope and you know coming through adversity and things like that. So James kindly got in touch and said actually trigger word there. The, the the thing that you know sticks out is that word of hope. In trying to share this message, there's there's an there's an aspect of hope in it for you. What what is that hope? The hope is that, you know, it's a belief almost that, you know, we can change this. We can do something about it. We can save the Rosses of, of this world. He was just one man. We're just one family. But there are hundreds of thousands of people out there. Um, but the, the hope, again, please fight for mental health. The support is just not there. The, those words came from a man who had lost all hope but saw it for other people. He saw that there was a, a campaign to be fought. And to me, Ross lost hope for himself, but he saw that there was a possibility of creating hope for other people in a, in a similar situation. And that's a powerful thing, you know, as a dad, you know, when his son um, in his dying moments says that, that's a, a, a very powerful thing. So I always say to people, you know, you know, they say, what motivates you? I've got all the motivation I need. And I think I... I I met up with a lot of um, bereaved dads in particular, uh, one in particular, Steve Phillip, uh, who lost his son, Jordan. And we got talking one day. We didn't know each other beforehand, but we got talking one day. We met up over coffee and we were kind of complaining about the fact that we'd both heard the same thing. We'd done talks to businesses and uh, lots of people had said, Oh, it's so difficult. It's so complex. What can we do? You know, how do you reach someone who wants to take their own life? And and we thought it kind of came across almost as a, a an excuse, if if you will. And we recognise that the one thing that unites everybody who ends up taking their own life is the loss of all hope. And we started to think about what bit could we do as bereaved dads to, you know, reach those people who felt alone, despairing, rejected, you know, and for whom hope was starting to evaporate. How do we reach those people? And uh, it's a long story, but, you know, that's how the baton of hope was born, basically. I can't remember whether I contacted Steve or whether it was the other way around. Neither of us can remember now. I think we were both going through a kind of blur and still dealing with the the aftermath. There are horrible things that happen to you in a situation like that uh, beyond the the loss and the shocking grief. For example, the police took Ross's letter away and uh, it took us a week to get it back. We got the call in the middle of the night from Ross's fiancée and we drove the two hours to uh, where he lived. Uh, Just remember, just a February night, raining. um, And we got there and uh, Ross's fiancée told us that the letter had been taken away and um, this was Ross's voice. You know, this is the last time that we'd hear his voice and we were denied the opportunity to hear it. 
at the very time when, you know, circular conversations were going round in our minds about why, what if, you know, um, just desperately searching for some kind of, I don't know, some kind of explanation. Is that commonplace? Do the police usually take the letter? Yeah, it's still regarded. Uh, well, no, it, that, that's not fair. It, it's it's it, the first responders are still the police, and that I think the policeman was very compassionate, very kind. Got no complaints. We have no complaints about any individual. However, that's still if that's a systemic and a widespread thing. That's an awful lot of people that are denied the ability to understand in that moment i mean you're not necessarily ever going to understand fully but you know in yeah. in their words as best as you can interpret them you're denied the opportunity to to have that last form of communication yeah and to you know at a critical moment just start to um i guess process things you know we couldn't really uh process it it wasn't the individual officer's fault, again, I repeat, it's the system is glacial. Uh, and again, that shocked me. And Steve, um, Steve Phillip, who I've just been talking about when he lost his son, Jordan, he was away working in the Midlands. Uh, he lives in Harrogate. And nobody could tell him where his son was. So he had to go around the various police stations and hospitals to try and find his son. And again, it's, you know, sometimes the police computers don't talk to the coroner's office computers. In the 21st century, you know, uh, one of the darkest crises a family can ever face, you're sort of denied that kind of basic service. And again, I think there are hundreds of, you know, thousands of people working in the mental health service, overworked, underpaid, under-resourced, doing a hell of a brilliant job, but it's the system. You know, they don't have the staff. They don't have the resources. So that for you is when we talk about change, when we talk about hope and you say, and Sajid Javid will talk about his own loss of his brother and talk about a 10-year suicide prevention plan. Is that what you hope that plan looks like is it is it an increase in staff is it an increase what does change look like to you what do you think it looks like to the government and what does it look like to you well to the government first of all i think the you know i welcome any steps to improve suicide prevention are steps in the right direction i go back to the fact that the statistics haven't moved for 15 years so any anything positive is I personally welcome most warmly an increase in staff. Absolutely. You know, the mental health services in this country are grossly understaffed. That's accepted by many politicians from all the main parties. We are, uh, the, the mental health system is a Cinderella service in this country. It is broken. And I think there are, as I say, a lot of people in government who recognise that. I think it's down to all of us, basically. Yes, politicians have a massive role to to play. Ross went to ask for therapy after suffering from depression for 10 years, and he was put on a six-month waiting list. He died two weeks into that wait. And again, I've spoken to so many families where they refer to the revolving door. Go to your GP. You know, they recommend medication, take the the medication it doesn't work you end up 
you know, uh, attempting to take your own life. You end up in hospital, you're discharged from hospital and then referred back to your GP. You know, there's a crisis team that are with you for two weeks. And so the story goes on. So there's so much. But I think it's for all of us because nobody is immune from this. You know, in, in education, in the health service, in politics, in the media, there was a headline, you know, a few months ago now, actually, um, Tory MP takes time off from Westminster after admitting depression. Admitting depression? What? You know, where's the guilt in suffering from depression? I wouldn't add, you know, it's the common cold of mental illness. I wouldn't admit to having a cold, you know, so why should I admit to having depression? There's no guilt attached. It's a human thing. So at the moment, because I'm quite touched by this as well, obviously I've not said anything yet, but you know, my, my uncle took his own life. Um, Sorry. I guess I'm from um, quite a, a low income and violent upbringing. It's that sort of thing tends to lead itself to I mean, ill mental health. You know, I've got some statistics in relation to um, basically people living in the most deprived areas face even higher rates of suicide, um, up to 36.6 per 100,000 compared to 13.5. So we're talking double and then some in less said they're deprived areas. So, you know, these things do touch poorer families as well. This is a beautiful house. You are a... A journalist, you you know, you have a lovely family, and yet depression still finds a way. It's it's the it's the illness, isn't it? That it doesn't discriminate. It's the the illness that does still get in somehow, and you think, but I tried everything, and and it's almost hard to wrap your head around. Yeah, you're absolutely right that you know the statistics are disproportionately higher in lower income uh, families, but it can and does affect everybody from every social strata from every kind of background so nobody can dismiss it the one thing people sort of ask me you know what what should we be doing with our kids and my first thought is don't ask me i i lost mine but also i think you know the one thing that i have got is the benefit of hindsight um following a suicide and i think as a dad especially you regard your job as fixing your kids. You know, it's like if they fall down and graze their knee, you pick them up, you give them a kiss, you put a plaster on the knee or whatever. And it's like, no matter how old they get, they're always your kids. You know, they can be in in their 30s. Ross was 31 when he died, but he was still my kid. And I wanted to just, we'll get through this, Ross, we'll do this. Um, Let's think about this, this, this and this. And one thing that I think I would do differently if I had my time again, which I won't, but is that I would listen. You know, just let them talk, listen. I wanted to do something sort of hands-on as well as uh, the baton of hope. And I set up a couple of branches uh, in the city where I live of men's talking groups because, you know, three-quarters of the people who take their lives are men, and there's a reason for that. And it's called Talk Club. It's just, it's a national charity, and I just sort of volunteer and kind of facilitate the groups, one at Sheffield United and one at Sheffield Wednesday. And um, it's called Talk Club, but actually it's Listening Club. We all want validation. We all want to be heard. You know, it's a, it's a, a human need, like food and water. We, we need validation. If it is of any use to anybody, um, the first thing that I would say is, I would tell myself, shut up and listen. 
um, if I, you know, if I had the opportunity again. He was very open about his mental health uh, issues, and uh, we did talk about it often. I mean, the last time we saw him, we had a drink to celebrate the fact that it had been a good year for uh, progress with his mental health. And then for whatever reason, the depression came back with a vengeance. Um, the next time I saw him was on a, you know, uh, a hospital slab. And just, you know, it, it kind of, it made me realise Suicide doesn't look like suicide very often. People can smile and they can seem like the life and soul of the party and um, tell you that everything's okay. Because one thing that Ross got very good at was pretending to be okay because he didn't want to inflict his pain on anybody else. That's genuinely how he was, you know. And he clearly thought that the world, quite wrongly, that the world would be better without him. Um, Yeah, but... um, Charlie's just started school then. Yes, he has. Yeah. 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 Do you have other grandchildren as well? Uh, no, just one. Just one. Yeah. And he's a chip off the old block in the sense that, you know, Ross was quite a chirpy, happy, uh, mischievous young lad. And, and Charlie is so full of positivity and, and happiness. You know, one day we'll have to have the, the inevitable conversation. But he knows that his dad is not around anymore. But he's sad, like kids are. There's a kind of strength in there somewhere. Whatever you put in front of him, he seems to treat it as an opportunity. You know, if he's at school, that's great. When he's going home to his mummy, that's great. Uh, If he's going on holiday, obviously, that's great. But if he's just staying in or playing with his friends, that's great as well. When he goes to football, brilliant. Swimming, brilliant. You know, Uh, it's just such a happy little lad. And, you know, it's so, he's, he's just so precious to us it's apart from the letter the other thing that i remember is that um, there are a pair of shoes on the lawn and i said to ross's fiance why are his shoes on the lawn and he'd um, made a snowman for charlie a few days before and charlie was sort of worried about how the snowman was going to move around in the night and stuff so ross said i'll give him a pair pair of shoes and um, the snowman obviously melted and just the pair of shoes left on the lawn you know and it's uh, an image that it'll stay with me forever because on a day like that it just I don't know it just seemed to have spoken about the fragility of human life and time and how precious time is I mean that's a very very figurative and and, and very literal there was a snowman there and there isn't now yeah you know yeah. that's yeah he was playing with his his little boy you know and uh, then everything Everything changed so quickly, you know, and that's how it can be. You know, we've got to, if we're going to look after and take care of people who are suicidal, we've got to act when the moment comes. We can't tell them, you know, go away for six months, try to live, try to have a decent life for six months and then come back. If you miss the moment, you miss the moment. And uh, I imagine, I don't know this, but I imagine for Ross, it was a final throw of the dice. And he probably took it as, as a kind of rejection. Do you know what? When the moment comes, do they really care? Do they? And they do. The, the, the people do. The system doesn't. I think it takes so much for somebody to go to ask for that help. 
that to then you're on a six month waiting list. And what, do they think you're just going to get better in that time? What's the, I, I, it's, it's funny. Cause you, you know, I tried to avoid that. The whole, they think as if there's yeah. some yes. collective yeah. holding everybody back from some getting the help. collective baddie. It's not, there's like not that. that. No. It's so the system. So the change that needs to happen in your mind is act there and then. Um, I mean, one of my friends has just started um, volunteering at the Samaritans. It's quite a process to get to to the point um, of being on the phones. And he's only been doing it, I think, a short period of time, a few weeks. And, you know, he said already, it's, you know, there's there's so many people that that's, it's, it's their last port of call. Um, because, and, and they talk, these, these people will phone and say, there's just not, there's not the support I need right now. And I'm being told that I matter, but I don't feel like I do. These things have a massive impact. I mean, you know, I always think of Ross as having a terminal illness. He was terminally ill. Okay, a lot harder to diagnose than, than perhaps cancer. But he was terminally ill. It's what I call cancer of the mind. And he was turned away. We simply wouldn't do that with somebody, you know, who had got terminal cancer, you would not put them on a six-month waiting list. We, we've probably both been touched, I'm, I'm sure, by people that we love and know with, with cancer. And the second they think, oh, there's something there, you're in for biopsies, you're in for scans, you're in for... It happens quickly. Yeah. And I don't know why it's not treated in the same way. And I don't know what needs to change for that to be treated the same way. No, uh, I mean, I... Um... I was kicked in the, the nose when I was a teenager playing rugby. And I've, I've always had a problem with my, my nose and breathing since. And um, it's going to get sorted. You know, it's one of those things I'll get around to one day. <laughs> um, but the amount of attention that I've been given because of that very, very minor problem, uh, it, it's good, you know. But compared with, you know, what we offer for people who are at absolute crisis level, uh, but again, you know, I, I repeat that I think it's something for society. It's a cultural thing. You know, we've got to stop looking at people who self-harm and dismiss them as attention-seeking and recognise that they're attention-needing. Just a little bit more compassion. Attention-needing. Uh, attention-needing. I, like, I like that. That's, that's interesting. That's a really, really good way of looking at it. I, I think uh, the bottom line for me is that... Uh, and. You know, the loss of Ross has made me less judgmental as as a person. And, um, you know, I've seen other people in in crisis and it's made me realise that, you know, just the simple things sometimes that we can all do, smiling at a stranger or just saying hello to somebody. Again, I've spoken to so many people who were at that point of taking their lives. They, they got a plan. And then they got a text out of the blue or a postcard came through the letterbox or something, you know, you know, just human connection. A tiny, tiny moment of human connection has brought them back. And again, I've spoken to a lot of people who've survived suicide attempts who've, you know, um, said that following that, just an act of kindness made them realize there is something to live for. There's something to hang on for you know there is hope and this is the thing going back to the baton of hope if there are so many symbols in life and icons that represent and celebrate physical prowess in every sport you've got trophies you've got medals and basically the message of that is let's honor this person 
who has shown their physical prowess. Where are the symbols? Where, where's the celebration? Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. ...of mental well-being. And that's what, you know, we at Baton of Hope believe, that this is a symbol of mental well-being that we hope will connect with other people. And it already has. You know, during the tour of the UK, we did 12 cities in 12 days. We started in Glasgow. And the idea was that after the tour was over, we'd all get together, um, the, the, the charity, the organising committee, and we'd decide, would it be a one-off or would we do it again? And in Glasgow, uh, one of the first people, or two of the first people, to hand the baton one to the other, two women, um, they handed the baton over. And there was just a moment as there was with so many of the handovers, where the hair stood up at, on the back of your neck, that they had a cuddle, swapped numbers, uh, both realised that they'd lost their husbands to suicide and both had been left alone as a result. What they didn't know is that they happened to live, not in the same village, but either side of the same village. And the moment I saw that very early handover on the morning of the Glasgow leg, I thought, yeah, we'll be doing this again. It's so special. Just, uh, yeah, it's incredible that a thing, you know, a symbol can carry so much and mean so much to people. And it really lifted my heart to see, you know, communities coming together. And in the sort of wake of the Baton of Hope, the, the legacy projects, there's a choir that were formed in Manchester to sing for the Manchester leg have stayed together the Sing Their Name Choir, and now, you know, getting booked to do lots of other things. Brilliant choir, by the way. And in Brighton, you know, the the volunteers who fix the, the Brighton leg, they're staying together in a community of hope, and I've got other events planned. And, uh, yeah, if you can't do anything else, you can just help to make that human connection. It's, maybe to some people sounds a bit airy-fairy and a bit simple, but... You know, we are here to be validated as human beings. And it goes back to the point that if we feel heard, we feel safer. You know, we feel happier. Is that the the support you think that might help people in their most difficult moments then to, to be, is is it just being heard, do you think? So like your, your nose, for instance, <laughs> it's an easy, it's, it's a physical fix. You know, you can... It's, it's an operation. It's something, cancer. We're talking about cancer. It's an, it's an operation to remove, you know, to remove those, um, you know, that, that, that lump or whatever it is. 
there's nothing quite so obviously physically doable about somebody's depression and yeah. you know worse you know at, at its worst at its worst moments so is it just to be heard is that is that the, is that the most we can do do you think i think talking is vitally important you know i've seen that uh, uh, you know I, i've witnessed it my, my, myself uh, the the uh, progress that you can make just through talking but it's much much wider than that you know, some people take their lives because they suffer with a particular kind of mental illness. Some people take their lives because they've had a breakup in a relationship, they've lost their job. And again, these are all things that can happen to uh, any of us. Two thirds of the people who take their lives have had no uh, connection with uh, mental health services previously. So Yes, there is talking, but very often it's difficult to see because people are good at putting on a, a smile and, and showing a you know a, a happy face to the world when inside they they're desperate. So I, th- there's lots more that we can do. I think at suicide prevention training, you know, in the workplace, we've uh, just look at the attention that we give to. Uh, health and safety executive rules and regulations regarding our physical well-being again let's have people in the workplace who are um, mentally uh, mental health trained who have training in you know recognizing that the signs you know that that somebody has you know maybe there's a change in their mood maybe their behavior patterns changed in some way that we can pick up on and again you know all of the things that we've we've talked about this the the helping children to recognize the danger of it Uh, you know we can't turn our backs on this anymore we can't say it's the biggest killer of under 35s and status quo let's carry on as normal something's got to change and this is what you know i say what we say at baton hope is we don't want sympathy we want change at the end of the day, we need practical change. And that goes through every layer of society, uh, whether that's education, media, politics, whatever. Uh, we, we we need change. I'm One of the big reasons I do this is I'm incredibly curious. I, I think it's when I employ, I look for curiosity. I, I think it's a, it sounds conceited now I said that I'm, I'm incredibly curious, but I think it's a wonderful trait because, you know, then oh, why is that thing the way that it is? So what I do is I, I look deeply into it and as I say suicide's impacted my life in, in you know quite a, quite a profound way so I, I look to data because I need the world to make sense and I appreciate that some people think oh there he goes again you know citing some statistics um, you've said some fantastic ones as well one of them was um, I saw a graph uh, it was an American study looking at thousands and thousands of, um, of of people in America I think girls particularly and self-harm or um, rates of self-harm and rates of suicidal ideation doubled. I think the date was 2008 to 2010 or it might have been 2010 to 2012. And then, you know, correlation causation and, and you know, the, the, the danger of, of, of going down that road. But what happened then? Increased incidence of smartphones, increased incidence of social, increased use of social media. And I wondered, literally doubled, you can see in the graph that the number of healthcare and professionals that say, yep, here's, here's the recorded rates. And it's incredibly marked. And I just wonder if you've spoken to anybody about that side of things, about, I don't, I personally don't know if we're even evolved enough to uh, to mentally comprehend the fact that we 
are in a sea of 7 billion people and social media just brings that to the fore. There's always somebody funnier, better looking, cleverer, earning more money in that job that you want, whatever whatever it is, you know, com- comparison being the, the thief of joy that it is. I wondered if you'd spoken to anybody or what your th- thoughts were on that aspect of things. You know, is is our smartphones and is social media worsening mental health? I don't think there's any question about that. I think it's brought huge advantages to society, uh, but it has brought with it also huge pressure, especially, I think, you know, to, to young people. The social media culture is that, as you say, everybody's life is better than mine. Why is mine so crap when they're on holiday in Hawaii or, you know, they've gone to the party, I didn't get an invitation, whatever. And I have spoken to people who haven't been able to unsee very disturbing images that they've accessed online. Uh, And that has been the sole cause for some of the people that I've spoken to of deep mental illness that will probably last a lifetime. And again, you know, it's another measure we've talked about, so some of the things that we need to do as a society. And... It sometimes feels to me that we're a little bit dismissive, you know, and again, it goes back to this thing, well, it's so complicated, you know, to be able to to do this. Maybe it's complicated, you know, nothing worthwhile is easy. We can do this. It is not beyond the wit of uh, men and women to be able to achieve this. We can do it. And when we look at the damage that it's inflicting on vulnerable children, then if we're a civilized society, surely we've got to address that with the urgency that it that it deserves. And again, it's I think with mental health in general, it's this cultural change that we need to get right be, before we do anything. If we can't even get the the basic language right, and we talked about you know committing suicide and admitting depression and uh, all the rest of it, and some of the language about you know, masculinity in the 21st century is absolutely ridiculous. You know, it's a strong, silent type. Whoever put the words strong and silent together, like... Hollywood? 1920s well, Hollywood? Well, yeah, but, you know, but that... exactly. But those role, those models, those, those models of masculinity persist to this day. I mean, I think it's wonderful with two men here talking about something that's incredibly impactful but you know really it's not easy to talk about no it's not and i think you know men in particular i think we've got to um take responsibility you know for opening the doors to emotional intelligence uh, it's something that i think women got right a long time ago probably and uh, it society's changed so much for men and women but i think particularly for men it's changed rapidly and i don't think you know, we have caught up with the with the changes. And this is one of the great things about Talk Club, you know, that it gives guys a, an excuse in inverted commas to open up about their emotional well-being. And the first question is, how are you out of 10 and why? So, you know, it encourages you, first of all, to, to think about rating yourself on a scale of 0 to 10 where you are and then explaining why you've rated yourself where you have on that particular scale 
a lot of business people have said to me, you know, going back to the point that it's so complicated, you know, do we as employers, can we dig into the minds of our employees? Well, actually, yes, you can. It's very simple. Just ask them, how are you out of 10 and why? How are you out yeah. of 10 today? How am I right. out of 10 today? And why? I, I, I'm, uh, I was, I would say, a five uh, as a result of... of talking to you and uh oh cheers sort of, <laughs> no being, no 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 i'm not five as I'm a result of you talking to you, you was, no let me finish let me finish i was gonna say i was a five but as a result of talking to you i'm now sort of six going on seven because you know it's uh, it's good to talk and uh, you, you're a, a a very good listener but yeah it's, it, it can be that, that's just one step, but that one step alone, if you carry out regular sort of uh, surveys, anonymous questionnaires for your employees, you'll get a pretty good idea. It's amazing the information that you can elicit from somebody if you say to them, how are you out of 10? And then ask them why they've chosen whichever score they've chosen. I think I and other people listening will hopefully take that away. How are you out of 10? Oh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I've never been asked that question. I... Um, I guess around a six as well. You know, I've got lots of things in the back of my mind going on. You know, I always try to be above a five. You know, I, if, if I, you know, put it in words, I, I'm an optimistic person by nature. I generally try to be quite confidently optimistic. And I believe that you can sometimes choose to be happy. You know, it, it is okay to be okay. And I think a lot of people you know, would, would, I think, a lot, you know, I think society as a whole, we... I think resilience is is a word that's almost a dirty word. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And right. I would, it's it's hard for me to talk about because in 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 this sense because I realise that my background is is very different to a lot of people's. And I used to tell myself endlessly from a young age, there's always somebody that's got it worse. From a very young age, there's you know somebody's got it worse. Don't worry about it. Keep moving. Keep moving. So it's it's hard for me to talk about because I I try to be just okay. Well, let's keep moving. And I appreciate not everybody wants to hear that. Not everybody wants to to hear that, you know, resilience shouldn't be a dirty word. It's it's trying to strike the balance between being being understanding and, you know, seeing where we can do it and not just trying to be a fixer. Yeah. That's as 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 you said earlier on, the problem is sometimes I just want to fix and I don't know what else to do. And so, you know, speaking to hear, hearing you speak is fascinating. So yeah, that's probably I don't know if that's a long winded way of getting to to how I am out of 10 and no 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 that's that's crystal clear and I think you're absolutely right that resilience is something that we are losing for some for some reason and I don't really fully understand that and I'm keen to learn more about how we bring back the resilience that I think we tend to associate with earlier generations you don't need to have had a horrific upbringing to difficult times but equally when you see those people that have had those difficult times and they can still be optimistic, they can still be positive and still like, I, I just, I just hope that people do see the hope in a situation or stories like that. And stories like you're telling us now where something, you know, something horrible has happened to you and your family. And first of course to Ross, but to you and your family. And it's, what are you doing with that? And that's why the baton of hope is, and has has hopefully re- received the, the the interest and um, the, the the widespread interest it has from the likes of the prime minister, from Alistair Campbell, and all the media that it's that it's kind of garnered. Is it is it people that are, you know they want to hitch their cart to 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 something hopeful? I, I think you know it's it, 
it can very often feel like a hopeless world. We're still suffering from the huge aftermath of lockdown and, and COVID and all the mental health uh, issues that are related to that. You know, there's a war involving one of the planet's superpowers. Uh, children are growing up for the very first time with the thought that this beautiful place where we live may not last forever. You know, we've always taken that for granted as a kid. I, it's something that I never even thought of, that I never even questioned. Would the world ever be destroyed? Uh, there was, you know, during the, the Cold War, there are um, issues about um, nuclear war uh, that, that were discussed, but nothing on the scale of the crisis that we're seeing now and the impact that that must have on on children growing up. But I do believe that there is hope. I do, you know, it's not just something that's plucked out of the air. You know, I don't believe in... I remember when, you know, we started the Baton of Hope and we were talking about what images we wanted to use uh, to, to uh, promote this, this idea. And I'm not into candles and white feathers and uh, all of that kind of thing. Uh, but... Uh, all of the academics pretty much believe the same thing. The people who've studied this say suicide is preventable. And those words have lodged with me uh, because I see the, the truth in it. And this is why, you know, we as a charity uh, are, are fighting for, um, campaigning for a zero suicide society. We may never get there. You know, and, and people may say, oh, you know, you can't stop uh, everybody from taking their own life. And, and maybe that's true. But there are a heck of a lot of things that you can do to prevent people from taking their own lives. And with the right circumstances, I believe that the vast majority of people who do take their own lives can be saved if they're given the right treatment at, at the right time, the right support at the right time, the, at the, a listening ear at the right time. So my question is, and the question of Baton of Hope is, if suicide is preventable, why aren't we preventing them? What do you say to somebody that might, let's say that somebody listening to this is, is feeling suicidal? What, and it's a lot of pressure to put on you to answer a question quite so, quite so big, but do you have any advice for that person? I can only speak, you know, I'm not an expert. Uh, I can only speak as a bereaved dad and say you are far more loved than you realize having spoken to people who believe that they don't have a place on this earth we all have a place it belongs to all of us and the people who are feeling suicidal have as much right to life as any of us i think there are armies of people out there who do care it may not feel like that, but I've seen a lot of goodness and a lot of warm-heartedness from so many people who really want to help. You know, you're not alone. So many people, it may feel sometimes like, you know, depression is, uh, a, a, you know, a minority issue or anxiety or whatever it is that's that, that's troubling you. But you're not alone. There are a lot of people going through the same kind of things. You can reach the other side. You know, I didn't know until after we lost Ross that uh, younger people in particular have a symbol, the semicolon, which is featured on the, the Baton of Hope. 
which basically, you know, it's a very often tattooed on, on a person's wrist. And it means that I found, like the semicolon in the sentence, it wasn't over. There was more to come. There is salvation. There is hope beyond this point. And, 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 you know, that, that's what the baton represents, that there is salvation out there. And there are a lot of people who want to help you to reach it. So is it to to follow on from that, to to really deeply consider who that person, those people are, or to reach out to uh, other people that you might not even yet know? Is it to pick up the phone? Is it to call the Samaritans? Is it to, is it just to try not to sit alone with that thought? Is it to, to engage with, to find a connection with somebody else in that moment? It's all of those things and more. It's all of those things and so much more. It's safe havens for people who feel they are suicidal. It's more staffing in the health service. It's what we call parity of esteem, treating people's mental health with all the seriousness and funding and attention and research that we give to physical health. You watch the news when they're talking about waiting lists in the NHS. Invariably, they talk about hip replacements, knee replacements, important things for people, very important things. But when was the last time you heard what the mental health waiting Don't lists were like? No, no, nor me. And again, as a journalist, I want to scream, please, my fellow journalists, please listen to me. You know, it's um, I, I, part of me wants to go back into journalism and, and, and start. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to, don't worry, folks, but... Uh, yeah, just sort of really draw attention to this thing that's been swept under the carpet for so long, largely ignored. To call it the Cinderella service is, you know, an exaggeration because Cinderella doesn't even exist in this story. You know, it just does not get anything like the attention it deserves compared with physical health. Things are changing, and uh, I think younger people in particular are, are pushing open the door. And sometimes I think, you know, the baton of hope's come along and we're kind of riding on the crest of a wave that's been created by other people, and primarily by younger people who haven't been afraid to uh, speak out and, uh, 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 and are, you know, willing to talk about their own personal circumstances in the hope that it will reach somebody else who's been through the kind of things that they've been going through. Before we started recording, you said that you spoke to a support group and you asked a question. What was that question? I It's what I call my driftwood days when I just didn't have any sense of uh, direction and uh, was thinking about joining Ross and the, the pain was so utterly, utterly unbearable. Uh, that I um, I went to a, a SOBS group, Survivors of Bereavement by Suicide, which was online. And um, I just desperately wanted somebody to give me some kind of hope and tell me, you know, how long does this feeling last, this void? It kind of almost felt like falling through darkness and not knowing if you would ever land, you know, would this go on forever? And uh, I said, how long does this last? And somebody just said, forever. And it wasn't the answer that I wanted. I I realise now why they said it, uh, because part of the acceptance of this kind of grief, for me anyway, is 
the recognition that it's eternal, that it won't go away. You know, things things will get better and you do laugh and, you know, you can go out, you can have a good time, you can go on holiday and, and all the rest of it. The brutal truth is, for most people that I've spoken to, is that they know they'll never get over it, that life has changed forever. But, you know, you can make that life worthwhile. You know, you can. Somebody said to me not long after we lost Ross, and it felt, it, it jarred with me a little bit at the time. They said, learn to be grateful. And my immediate response was, <laughs> well, yeah, you just uh, made a hand gesture. <laughs> and that was, that was precisely my response as well, that, you know, what the hell do you mean? You know, I've just lost my son. You know, what have I got to be grateful for? And then, you know, as things have sort of slowly developed over the past two and a half years, uh, and this is thing, one thing that I come across with the talking groups that I helped to run, that, you know, a, a walk in nature, nature's so important to people. Um, just little things, you know, this may sound silly, but clean bed sheets and uh, good food and a dog or, you know, a hug, things like that are just so important and and th- that person who said be grateful i know now why why they said it and i appreciate what they were saying i didn't understand it at the time but i understand it now there are a lot of great reasons for living are you still in contact with ross's fiance yes yeah, yeah obviously yeah. as the mother of your yeah, grandson yeah, but yeah no we're, there's a picture of them there uh, on the mantelpiece uh yeah how, how's she yeah. um She's, uh, it was extraordinarily difficult, unimaginably difficult for Charlotte because she found Ross in the middle of the night and tried to save him. Um, But she's got a spirit. She's got some strength in there that has carried her through. We've all had, you know, we all have lapses where we kind of don't want to get out of bed uh, some days, but we're close and we've stuck together and we've talked and we've listened. Um, and so we're, we're getting through it bit by bit, you know, and we'll, we'll always be like that, I think. You know, we'll always be uh, a close family and uh, we share the love of Ross. That, that'll never change. And it's, a, you know, it's an unbreakable bond, really. And you said earlier that you kind of see a little bit of his cheekiness in in Charlie. Yeah. So there's yeah, there's that. <laughs> yeah, and again, that's a really hopeful thing. You know, some people might think, "Oh, he's a reminder of your son, and that must be hard." But actually, no, he's a positive reminder of Ross. And as I said earlier, he's a chip off the old block, and it's part of Ross. It's like having a part of Ross with us. My partner says it. So she, her brother. Um, died in a car accident when she was 17, so he was 19. And her older brother's son now is apparently, and we have seen photos, they are, they look very alike, very alike in character apparently to to um, what her brother was when he was younger. And I see the joy that that brings the family far more than you see. And, and it, you know, I've certainly heard and spoken to to them and, and about how it's sometimes painful to be reminded quite so obviously about, because it, there there is that space, there is that, where he should be. But now that there is a joy in, oh, you know, it, it almost means that he didn't need to be here for that 
person to become the person they are. Like it was, it was always going to happen. You know, yeah. that there was always going to be his, his personality was always going to be reflected in some way in that. Um, it's like sharing stories with Ross's mates, you know, yeah. and finding out things that I didn't know when he was things you alive. shouldn't have known. <laughs> things that I, probably it was good that I didn't know about when he was when he was alive. But one of his friends uh, the other day very sort of kindly uh, organised a, a sponsored walk uh, appropriately in the Hope Valley in the Peak District in in Derbyshire, and uh, he was telling me that you know Ross had this quite naughty sense of humour at times. And um, he knew that his friend uh, suffered for... He, he didn't like heights. And um, for his birthday, Ross booked him a bungee jump, <laughs> which was, you know, typical of, of the way Ross was. So, yeah, no, the, there are good reminders. You know, that people do live on in, in, in the memory, and those memories are, are good memories. You know, they're happy memories. And we were privileged as parents and and lucky to uh, have Ross in our lives uh, for 31 years. He wasn't, Ross wasn't his suicide. He was a living, breathing, loving person. Uh, I I miss him every minute of every day, but uh, there's definitely a part of him still with us. Button of Hope. As, as um, As a charity, can't have been easy. Or did it give you a sense of purpose to create and something to to really, you know, you, you have a to-do list each day. And I've been around the creation of, of a charity and that to-do list is extensive and not not the easiest thing to tick off. Um, how did you go about creating the charity and and what, what are your hopes for it? When, when we had the idea that, like, that we wanted to create some kind of hope, it was a very vague idea it started off. And then it began to sort of uh, gather... Uh, sorry, I keep sort of... Uh, this is part of the... But I should explain, by the way, that uh, one of the side effects of, of the grief is that, you know, I find anyway, is that uh, my concentration goes off sometimes when I'm talking deeply about Ross that... Uh, my mind does drift a little bit, but before oh. before we do come back to the point, where does it drift to? Um, I don't know. To be honest, I think it sort of looking for something. I think there's always part of you looking for something that's not there. Uh, some days I just feel like just driving and driving and driving and never stopping. And maybe that's kind of running away from the pain. I don't, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it in in great depth. It's just somewhere else other than the present. And, and forgive me, you know that that's not a I'm reflection. Of, again, I'm <laughs> not not to just just to come back to the point of curiosity, but I'm I'm intrigued by that. It's because I, I don't know. If, I mean, they say you know you, you can always travel, but you can never travel from, away from yourself, right? So in that in that moment, is it a uh, trying to find some solace elsewhere, some you know something where you you know you're not in the moment talking about your son who took his own life, possibly. That's I think that's fair. I think that's fair because it does take up so much of your sort of thinking hours, you know, you, uh, and it, it it's hard to deal with that sometimes. You know, as I say, there are very happy and positive memories, but again, with the charity, you know, I'm talking about 
suicide quite a lot. That's my choice. Um, that's what I want to do. It's, you know, nobody's making me do this. It, it's what I want to do. But, you know, you, you are concentrating for a lot of your time on the issues surrounding suicide prevention. So, you know, it brings up those sort of memories of, of Ross. And that can be difficult. But Again, you know, going back to the baton of hope, I think you're about to ask, you know, does that give me sort of a sense of direction? Does that give me healing? And the answer is absolutely yes, it does. Um, Once we got that idea that we wanted to sort of in some way, you know, give people hope. And the great company, Thomas Light, came on board. This, you know, goldsmiths and silversmiths to the royal family. They basically said, would you like us to design this baton that you've got a a vague idea of? And, you know, snap the hand off, basically (laughs) try to play it cool. But yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, yeah. uh, yeah, just give me a minute. (laughs) Yes. And and they did a beautiful job on it. They listened. There was a designer. Uh, who was based in Australia, uh, who we had a call with. And right from the moment I opened my mouth, he started to sort of sketch ideas. And he really listened. And, you know, this this inside, just the, the care that they've put into it is, is just beautiful. It's uh, quite a weighty thing, actually, heavier than, than you think. But the fact that, you know, inside the handle, for example, where nobody can see it in the darkness, they've inscribed the words of, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, uh, hope is being able to see that there is light despite all of the darkness. And then the lattice work, a community of people holding each other aloft towards a sort of golden spiral that that, that uh, travels upwards to the opening that has this curl of, of semicolons that we've 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 talked about. And everything about the baton is designed to move upwards with progress and, and hope. And it's such a great thing. And yeah, what, once we'd actually, when I collected it from the company, I couldn't believe, first of all, I'd seen artists' impressions of it and, and all the rest of it, 3D um, pictures of it done in graphic form. But when I actually held it, I don't know, something happened. I, I it's really hard to describe. And I saw it happen when the baton was on tour, when it was being passed from one person to another. You know, we were talking earlier about the sort of dire state of the world in many respects, the you know cost of living crisis and all the rest of it. And I think people are yearning for hope. People just want to believe in something that's going to make their future better, that there's a purpose out there that we can go towards there's a light that we can travel uh, towards and um yeah the minute that i held it and felt the sort of the weight of it it, it felt symbolically as though it, it 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 carried some some weight every time i see it every time i hold the baton every time i see it out and about at various events uh it it you know, it just has that effect on me. And I've seen it with, with other people. It's a kind of a, a, an interesting... I think we phenomenon. are an interesting species in that we do rally around emblems, symbols, yeah. you know, kind of totems, and have done for millennia. Yeah. You, know, rec- in, you know, recorded history shows us that that's the case. So there's something incredibly powerful and uniting about something you can all see, feel, touch, look yeah. at. You know, there, there's just... there's something powerful about that so for some people 
there's something kind of religious about the idea of of you know uniting under a symbol of hope. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in some cultures, you know, people do celebrate the beauty of this complex planet inside our heads, the beautiful and complex planet that can, you know, turn into into the darkest storms and yet carry people through adversity. And but in 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 western culture, I, I, I don't see many symbols like that. I don't see many symbols of the the beauty of mental well-being in the same way that we recognize the beauty of physical health and prowess and all the rest of it. So I think that's that's part of it. Um on that on that note, I um so I mentioned my uncle my uncle passed away, he took his life. We were quite close. Uh and he um he gave me this horrid my girlfriend when she moved in with me she's like um what is this and why and it's um it's a two-faced on on each side one a crying baby and on the other a laughing baby and it's disgusting and it's hideous and honestly it's the worst thing you've ever seen <laughs> but of course i'm never I'm, I'm not the i'm not the most kind of things oriented person you know i'm quite I'm quite happy to live quite um quite frugally and or you know w- without you know, I, I don't need lots and lots of things i'm never letting that go it's, it's hideous i promise yeah. you is it you know is, is there a a thing, a possession, you connect deeply to, to Ross and... Yeah, there's a tree in the garden. Uh, I've got th- we had three kids and um, when each of them was born, we planted a tree to sort of celebrate their birth. And Ross's tree is obviously still there. Uh, it continues to grow. Uh, even though he's not here, it continues to thrive. And sometimes I just I'd go in the garden and, and just sort of... Uh, like hold the, this may sound a bit strange, but I hold the branches and hold the leaves, and uh, it's no substitute for, for for Ross, but it feels like a, some kind of connection. It's it, it's part of Ross, um, and again, Ross his favourite colour was yellow, but we um, we've got some yellow roses in the garden, and, and again, when I look at the the baton, uh, I had to give a, a talk the other day, and I I spoke about uh, the theme of the talk was the rose, uh, the, the flower, the rose. And uh, it was odd that, uh, again, you know, one of those little coincidences, it was strange that I was asked to deliver a talk based around the theme of the of a, of a rose because when Ross died, uh, another thing that we did is we went to throw uh, a yellow rose into the, the river where he used to swim as a kid in Derbyshire. And it was a place where we'd had a lot of happy memories and uh, we just, you know, watched as it drifted off to who knows where. But um, yeah, and so I, I guess you know the baton as well. To me, is, uh, in my mind, anyway, I'm sure nobody else is probably, but in my mind, it vaguely resembles a sort of golden rose. You know, that's how I like to see it. But uh, I think that different people see different things in it. Is there any way people can help with the charity? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Come on board. You know, the charity is for everybody. We keep saying this is not our baton. It's your baton. Everybody's involved. And I've I've had sort of like marketing kind of people say to me, who's your audience? And they never like the answer because the answer is everybody because suicide can affect anybody and everybody, you know, every family. So many families are touched by it, but don't speak about it. Uh, but it can touch any family, given the sort of uh, the the wrong circumstances. So anybody who wants to come on board, please do. Please look at the website. 
we're a charity. We need money to exist. If you would like to do some fundraising, that would be brilliant. We've had some fantastic people out there who've been running marathons and doing all kinds of things and parachute jumps. And uh, to me, they're real, real champions, you know, who want to do something, an actual thing, a practical step to uh, help somebody. Um and yeah, we've got big plans for the future that we're currently discussing at the moment. So I can't really say much about that uh, at, at the moment. But the tour has shown us that the world is ready to talk about suicide, that, that there's something in the air, something's opening up. Uh, and to see people responding to this uh, 12-day tour, to see what it means to people, it's really given us the confidence to go forward with uh, the baton of hope, build on what we've achieved so far. We want to do it with as many people who, who want to be part of it as we can. I think this is going to be incredible. Is, is, by the way, is next year 50 cities? Is it, or is it going to stay to 12? We don't know. Okay. Uh, we, we, can I tell you this? Go on. But, you know, it's like, I can't. Yeah, I've been paid to talk for my whole life and I don't know when to stop. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to tell you. Um, we're not going to do the tour next year. We've got other plans next year. We're, we're looking at doing another tour in 2025 and really building on the, the success that we had with the uh, first one. I think you're going to have an incredible impact. I think, have you ever heard of Terry Fox? The name sounds familiar. Terry Fox is a Canadian. He was right. 21 and he'd had cancer. Right. He ran from the East of Canada all the way to, or the aim was to run all the way west uh, to Vancouver. So I think it would be like Newfoundland to, to, to Vancouver. And he, he called it the Marathon of Hope. Uh, so quite apt, quite, quite similar. And this was in the 80s, I want to say. If you talk to a Canadian, you drop the name Terry Fox, they'll think right. you're the best thing since sliced bread because he is a national hero. He's on their currency. Okay. He died halfway through. So he had an amputated leg. So he's running on, you know, one one good leg and he died of his cancer returned and he died during, during that run. And he is an incredible symbol of hope for Canada. They have raised untold millions in his name as a result. And the Marathon of Hope is, again, if you speak to a Canadian, they know of it. They're taught it in school. I have a feeling, and without jinx in it, <laughs> the Baton of Hope can be a similar thing and that Ross's name can live on in exactly the way that Terry's does with what you're doing here and it's it's powerful and I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm moved by it I'm incredible and I know that lots of people will be thank you thank you and it's you know I just um, say again Ross was just one man uh, the baton represents uh, all of those people out there who who need hope and if there's anything that we can do to help people you know like my son and also survivors of suicide, you know, very often we think of them as having got through the darkest times. They can go through very, very dark times afterwards too. So they're very important to us. They need our help and we, we want to reach out to them too. Absolutely. I don't, I don't think any one of us is impenetrable. You know, even so we might think we are right now. I remember reading that, you know, to bring it back to men and, and this is an issue, the majority of men over the age of 40 say they don't have one best friend. They don't have one good friend. So we're talking to loneliness. We're talking to, you know, trying to, you know, trying to show, show people that they do matter. So I think conversations like this hopefully help and somebody listening that doesn't feel like they have got somebody or doesn't doesn't feel cared about can 
you know, can realise that they do matter. So, Yeah, thank you. Uh, I often talk about Tyson Fury, who proven himself to be physically one of the fittest guys on the planet, heavyweight champion, uh, boxer of the world, but someone who's not afraid to uh, be vulnerable and to talk about his vulnerability in terms of his, his mental health. And he's a great role model in that respect because I think far too often, you know, with men in particular, that we're we tell each other that vulnerability is weakness. It absolutely isn't. Accepting the vulnerability is strength. And, uh, you know, if, I don't know, if, if people don't remember one word of what I've said, I, I, I hope that maybe they'll, they'll try to remember that, that I think it's such an important message. I think there's a for lot, all of us, a lot to remember from what you've said. So, uh, Mike, thank you so much for letting me into your house, uh, for inviting me and um, and for having this conversation. It's an incredibly important one to be having. Yeah. And, um, no, thank you. Thank you. I'll keep this outro fairly light. Fact is, powerful stuff. I keep saying that. It's possibly one of the most important episodes we've had so far. I think every episode on its own merit is impactful, inspirational, hopefully entertaining. Um, you, there's, there's bits to take from it, but you know this one, it hits home for, for many, many people. And I just want to say thank you so much to Mike McCarthy. Uh, thank you so much to Steve Phillip uh, by proxy, because we, we've not actually spoken, but you know for, for coming together with Mike to, to create the Baton of Hope and the legacy that you are creating with this important campaign. And thank you to you for listening. It's nothing without you listening. There's zero point to this. I'm just some idiot talking into a microphone. So thank you for your shares, your love, your support. Last episode with Calder, it went, I think we we had more messages after that episode with Calder than we've had any other time. So your messages are read. They're appreciated. You can email us hello at startinglinepod.com. You can contact us on social media at startinglineshow pretty much across everywhere you might want to find us. I have brought somebody in to help with social media now, so it's a job in itself. Obviously, I run the PR agency as well as this, and this is a passion of mine. I've wanted to do this, as anybody that will listen will know, for a long time, and I'm finally starting to pull together something of a a crack team to, to help get this out there. And I think all I want to bring is honesty, authenticity, as I say, something like I want to create something special, entertaining, and informative and educational and that satisfies curiosity, that inspires all of those things without being too po faced about it, without being too twee and too overtly sincere. That's not what this is about. This is, I want to keep highlighting incredible people doing great things and just getting, getting to the bottom of their story. I think conversations are the most important thing that we can have. It's, it's what changes minds. It's what changes the world around us. So I'm enjoying this. Thank you. This is episode nine. We've got three more until the end of series one, after which we're probably coming back with video and some incredible guests. It's just, we're, we're, we're lining it up right now and going to be traveling all across the country and bringing you some of the best guests that we can possibly bring and some of the best conversations we can have as well. So thank you. Thank you as ever to producer Eddie and I will speak to you next Monday. Don't forget to subscribe and while you're there, feel free to leave a little review. 
we do read them. Five stars are lovely. Thank you very, very much. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.